<clears throat> All right, this is uh, honestly, I don't know what it is. I always feel like I have to move things around. Sometimes it's just like a little bit. Maybe I, I, I don't know what it is. All right, today is a fun day. I always enjoy starting a new sermon series. It's a bit of an adventure all the time because you, you, you sort of dive in and, and you want to, sometimes I feel like I want to over-preach or I want to say everything. I want all the things that you should know about this, but we're going to walk through this uh, day by day or Sunday by Sunday uh, to the end of June and maybe into July. We're, we're going to start with 1 John. And then we'll sort of see how it plays out and into July if we, we go into Second uh, and Third John as well. If you haven't already got one of these uh, scripture journals, there are still some available. They're eight bucks or so if you can do that. And again, these, uh, these simply have the scriptures in it and then some blank pages for you to write some notes throughout the sermons or, or in life groups, that kind of thing. So if you want to make sure you grab one of those, there's just a limited supply that are left. But of course, you probably also have a, a Bible or a digital thing and with notes as well. That's just a, a tool that's a resource for you. <clears throat> All right, this morning, I simply want to introduce the key themes of the book of 1 John in the way of, of three tests that the author, who we're going to identify as John, he doesn't self-identify himself in, in the beginning of this book, uh, but we'll, we'll probably unpack that a little bit more throughout the series. But as he weaves this throughout the book, these three particular tests, and they're not in a linear way, it's almost like spiraling through, and then we're going to look at specifically the first four verses of chapter one uh, before we come to the, the Lord's table to share communion together. All right. When I said test, some of you maybe felt as uncomfortable as you did when I said, you know, stand up and talk to each other. Uh, tests kind of make us sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable or exams, but um, Sometimes it takes uh, maybe a little bit of humor that would, would help that. So there was this, this man, he was scheduled to go to an eye exam. And he walks in, and he gets it done. When the doctor walks into the office, he has a concerned look on his face. That's always something that, you know, brings fear and dread. You know, the doctor looks concerned. What's wrong, the patient asks. Well, the doctor says, your tests don't look too good. And the patient replied, well, can I see them? And the doctor answered, probably not. <laughs> All right, not so great. How about this one? <clears throat> I don't usually start out with jokes, but you know. All right, why did the alternate universe Spider-Man do so well on his driving test? Well, he was an excellent parallel parker. So those groaners, eh? All right. Most of us, when we think of tests or exams, yeah, we, we're, it's kind of brings about a thought of, of stress or anxious thoughts, especially in the, the life of our, our college or university students. There's this time of, of cramming, you know, jamming, really, all that is possible into their minds and their brains so they can retain it for at least the two hours during the exam. When I was in my fourth year at Briarcrest at Bible College, I had the opportunity to take the book of Romans with 
Chancellor Hildebrand, Henry Hildebrand, the, the founder of Briarcrest. And it was, I think it was probably the, the last class that he taught formally. And so it was most of us that were in our, you know, understood this is, this is pretty significant just to be able to sit in a class with Dr. Hildebrand. Uh, but I remember him clearly before, uh, you know, he would, before an exam that was coming up or midterm, he would tell us exactly what was on the test. And I thought, well, this is refreshing. Talk about time-saving as well. Like, I don't you know, I have to study all that other things. This is exactly what is on the test, he said. So this is what I want you to know. And so that is what you should spend your time studying. I don't know if it really helped my grade any, but, uh, but I remember that clearly. It's just like, you know, this is what I want you to know. This is what you should study. That made sense. Now, I don't know what would be our attendance on Sundays if you came in, you sat down, and you saw there was a piece of paper and a pencil, and there was a test every Sunday <laughs> before you came in. Uh, I, how many of you would say, yeah, next church? <laughs> I'll try something else. Maybe, uh, I don't know, it would be maybe kind of fun. See, if you, if you pass, then you get to sit in the back. And if, and if you fail, you're in the spit zone, right in the front. I don't know, it could work. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about, about tests today, but as we start in on this letter of 1 John, as we walk through this book over the next couple of months, here's the thing. It's, it's kind of a spiritual testing that's going on. Perhaps other, you know, we might call it signs or, or markers, or in a way, the, the test sort of idiomatically, like this is an expression that is used sometimes as is litmus test. Like a litmus test is where you take a, a special piece of paper and you, you dip it in some liquid and that determines, as you pull out that paper, it, it determines the acidity or the alkalinity of the liquid. Now, so when we say we use it idiomatically as an expression, it's, it's simply saying that this is a litmus test. This reveals something that is, in fact, true. We're saying that there is one or several things that are effective ways of measuring or proving something. So, in fact, the writer of 1 John identifies three litmus tests specifically, which for us today are self-examinations, seeking to answer the question raised, as is the title of the, the sermon series, am I in the light? Am I in the light? Now, light in the book of 1 John and really throughout scripture speaks of fellowship. If you are in the light, you are in fellowship relationally with the Father. So how can we know that we are in the light? Interestingly enough, you'd be surprised at how many conversations that I've had and I've had with other pastors as well who have, have spoken to people in their later years in life, people who have been part of churches, have gone to Bible school, have served as missionaries, have been faithful in their church service, but in their later <clears throat> years in life have had this question, am I, am I really saved? 
As they come to the, the end of their lives, this question, can I, can I be sure that I'm going to enter into the presence of God? And any of us, at times, where we could look at our lives, is there some references? Is there some litmus test that we could say, is this true of me, that I know Jesus, that I'm walking in fellowship with him? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, <clears throat> examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Scripture also talks about a different kind of marker, and that is fruit. It talks a lot about fruit bearing. And this is a very good example, a good metaphor, because it's things that we know, even living in much of an agricultural kind of environment here in the prairies, is that what you plant in the ground, you expect to see come up out of the ground. Scripture also talks about this idea of sowing and reaping. And it would, it would be very illogical for you or to think that if you would take, a, take your truck, load it up with, with garbage and go out into, well, let's say your neighbor's field and dig it up and plant it in there, that you would, what would you expect to come up out of the ground? What you sow, you reap. Now, very clearly, as we've said in other sermon series, and you've heard me say this if you've been around here for a while, when we look at God's word and when there is these, these kind of evaluative things, we've talked about what it means to be a disciple. We've talked about what are the, the core values of, of us as a church. It's very important for us to always come back to this idea that God's word is a mirror, not a magnifying glass. And so when we read God's word, it, it, it examines us. We look at it through that lens. God, what are you saying to me? How am I doing with this? Rather than looking at my neighbor and saying, oh man, that guy's failing the test. So as we walk through this series, always keep that in mind. <clears throat> this is for you and for me. A test for us. Now, John, as the author, as we stated, will, will identify these kind of metaphors throughout, very contrasting images, light or darkness, life or death, love or hate, truth or lies. And so I invite you in your Bible or in your scripture journal, where you see those contrasting things to, to make a note, make a mark, feel free to mark that up. So today, here we go. Three primary tests, and then we'll look into the first four verses. And again, this is going to be <clears throat> woven throughout the rest of this series, so I'm not going to unpack all of it today. First of all, the first test is the truth test. The truth test, or the theological test. What I believe about Jesus Christ now, in, in theological <clears throat> things, we talk about this, a big word is Christology. We don't have to be afraid of, of big words. Um, you know, when we talk about theology, we're talking about the study of God, understanding, asking questions and seeking answers about God, who he is, what he's done, what he's like, his character. 
Christology, again, not a word that has to, to scare us away, but it, it is about Jesus and primarily about the nature of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So who he is, his character, his nature, and what he did for us. So we talk about Christology. So this is one issue that is addressed very clearly in the book of 1 John. Now, again, just little reminders is sometimes when we walk through books of the Bible as a whole to set out from the beginning, what is kind of the, the direction or the uh, kind of the, the underneath, the underlying uh, component of the, the book. So there's some books in the Bible that we would say are, are descriptive and some that are prescriptive. It's a really good understanding, another big word, of the hermeneutic, that's interpreting. How do we interpret God's word? We have to know how to interpret and then how to apply it. But when we look at a hermeneutical principle, it's very important to understand, is this book descriptive or is it prescriptive? So this is what this means. A descriptive book is like the book of Acts. We went through part of that a little while ago. Acts, Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. However you want to say it, it's the book of Acts. And that is a descriptive book in that it is describing the events. This is describing what happened. Okay? Prescriptive, that means it's like you have a problem or you have an illness and you go to the doctor or whatever, you get a prescription to fix the problem. Prescriptive is, is that there is a problem that needs to be addressed and this is what needs to be done about it. And this is a lot of the New Testament and the letters that are written to the churches. There was problems. Whether it was theological, there was heresies, teachings that were off base. There was unity issues that needed to be addressed, you know, division in the church. There was all, all kinds of things that were being, you know, how sin issues that needed to be addressed. And so the apostles' writings there are prescriptive because it says this is what needs to be done. Now, how that applies to us, simply this, is that if something is descriptive, then we have to weigh it out and say, is that something that is true for, for us now, that we have to be just like that? We read it and say, that's what the apostles did. Does that mean we have to do it? It's No, it's just describing what they did. And there's probably principles to draw out of it, but we don't have to pattern what we do exactly like them because it was just describing what happened. Prescriptively, though, there's things that are addressing problems that probably are the same for us today in some way, shape, or form. And we also have to come in line with that. All of it, God's word, all of it, we come under and we submit to it, to his authority. But we have to just understand how to, to interpret it in that way. That makes sense? Probably went on way too long for that. Okay, here we go. Christology, though, this was the problem. So 1 John is, is, in many ways, prescriptive because it's dealing with the problem that needed to be addressed. Now, John here was a, was a pastor, and, you know, he had been one of the, was one of the apostles. And so he's looking over at the churches that are growing and, and seeing, okay, what, what are some of the issues that need to be addressed? Here's point one. Christology was messed up. We're saying things about Jesus, and we'll get into that as far as they were identifying the fact that, that Jesus, they didn't believe that he actually had come in the flesh. Which is quite interesting, actually, because when Jesus was, 
walking the earth physically, that was never a question. Was this guy a human? I think so. I heard him burp. You know, there was, there's things that were very much like always about Jesus. He was flesh and blood, walked among them. But is he God? That was the issue then. But now, years later, as the church is formed, they've kind of let go of that idea. Then they thought, well, you know, we can know God through kind of a special knowledge. But it was, it was not because Jesus actually was human that he was actually incarnate in the flesh. And so this is something that John is saying, okay, we got to clear that, clear that up. In a way, it's like being on a, on a roof. Have you ever... This has happened to me where I've, I've, in my house in Abbotsford, we, I was very aware of the amount of moss or, you know, whatever that happens on your roof. If you ever lived in BC, you know this is a, this is a thing. You always get, your roof always gets full of this. So I was, I was a little bit like, okay, I don't like the look of that. I'm going to go and scrape that off or pressure wash it off, whatever. It doesn't really matter. The idea is I was on the roof and I had to get on the roof with a ladder. And as I got up on the ladder <clears throat> and I was, you know, spraying off my roof or doing whatever I was doing, all of a sudden, the, the pressure washer, you know, hose knocked the ladder, and the ladder fell down. And this was on my day off, which was Monday. Everyone else seemingly in the, in the neighborhood was at work, imagine. And my wife was, was out doing something. Maybe she was at work, too. And I was like, okay, I'm on the roof here. And the ladder has fallen down. And I didn't have a cell phone with me. So I sat down, worked on the tan. Like, what am I going to do? I could try to jump off, probably break my ankle or something, but I can't get down. And in a way, this is, this is what happened when this happened in the church, is that these, these leaders, they, they left the teaching about who Jesus is, about being fully divine and fully human, and it was like the latter had been swept out from underneath them. Everything that they had built on in their theology about who Jesus is and the Christology of who he is had been disregarded, swept away. And John says, no, we've got to deal with that. So let me ask you today, what do you believe about Jesus? I hope that you will hear this and I think I said it just not that long ago, probably through the Easter season, that we believe that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. 100% fully God, 100% fully human. It's a mystery. Seemingly like an, a contradiction to us, but it is essential to our Christology, to our understanding of who Jesus is. If only divine, he would not be able to sympathize with us in our weakness. If only human, he could not be the sinless, eternal sacrifice for our sin. And there's a lot more we could unpack about that. But that is, that is true. But hear this, this isn't just about a, a doctrine. And this is what John is going to unpack, is that this is about a person this is about an experience that they had. This is about a relationship with God himself. So one hope I have for this sermon series is that each of us deepens in our understanding of who Jesus is theologically, Christologically, but also 
relationally. It's all connected. Secondly, there's the moral or the ethical test that John's going to deal with. This is about how I, how I obey, how I act, conduct myself, how I deal with, with sin in my life, how I feel about that. And this is the problem that is, is prescriptively that he's dealing with here, is that among the people, there was a clear disconnect, a contradiction between the way of Jesus and the way that they were living. And out of that also, there was a reality, and, and uh, John Mormon's going to talk about this next week, about the next passage that talks about they, they denied that they were sinners. There's a denying of sin in their life. That's a problem. See, faulty Christology, who Jesus is, inevitably leads to faulty conduct. If you disregard the person of Jesus, you disregard his teachings and what he accomplished on the cross, mainly for your sins, and that fails to bring about life transformation. One commentator says this, the person whose life does not change, who shows no change from their former life, or a distinction between them and the unbelieving world, reveals that he or she has not seen or known Jesus. Though every believer is a work in progress, every believer's life should show a noticeable difference in living a life that becomes more like Christ. If a person's life is no different than that of a non-believer, there is no reason to be confident that they are a true believer. If you know Jesus, if you're walking in the light, fellowship with him, there will be life transformation. Thirdly, there's the social, the love test. Here's the problem being addressed by John. You say that you love God, but how are you treating your brother or sister? It says you can't actually say that you love God and hate your brother or sister. It doesn't wash. John is saying that love should be a clear, identifiable marker of those who walk in the light. He even goes on to say that God's love, it's, which is perfect, we'd say, but it's made complete. Teleos is the word. It means to be made complete. How? When we actually love each other. That's how God's love is made complete. When we tangibly love each other. Okay, so these three things are, are not all like, oh, check, pass that test. Oh, check, pass this test. Oh, last one, yeah, got that. It doesn't say, oh, I got 66%. They're all inter intricately connected. If you think of it in a way like a triangle where the, the basis, the foundation is our, our theological understanding and our belief, our faith in who Jesus is and what he did. And then out of that, or the entailments of that, what comes out of that, the fruit of it is how we love each other and how we walk in obedience to his commands. All right, here we go. A few minutes left. We're going we're gonna to go through um, 1 John 1, 1 to 4. And this is from the ESV, <clears throat> as is your scripture journal. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, 
and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, we'll notice this a little bit different than some of the other letters in the New Testament is that it's not kind of written as a letter saying this is who's writing it and who is the audience. He just kind of jumps right in. So 1 John is written in a way almost like an essay. And it had general use among churches more than just to one specific audience. Okay, I'm going to go through sort of three words, and, and they're Greek. You don't have to remember them, but I just like to, to kind of, uh, the way that they're put into this beautiful text is, is rich. So the first, what John is talking about here is the message or the angalia, angalia. Okay, this is the message, and it's actually, the word is used in verse Five, but saying this is the message that we have heard, and this is what we proclaim. This is the this is the container. This is the what we what we pass on to you as the message. And you notice through in these verses that we see that he's talking about Jesus as the the Word, one that appeared or was made manifest. He enfleshed himself. He was incarnate in a particular time. And place. That's important. And in that, as he was made manifest, appeared, he was witnessed. They experienced life with Jesus. And out of that, they became witnesses, testifiers of who Jesus is. John, and I should have backed up, I guess, on this. This is 1 John. Uh, there's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, later on in, in the, the Bible. If you are new to the Bible and you opened it up and you came to John after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's the Gospel of John. And we, we believe that's the same author, same very clear um, writing style. And anyways, John, in the Gospel, John 1 verse 14, says this very similarly. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so now in 1 John, he's talking about something that has been tangibly experienced. He says that we have, we've heard, we have seen, and we have touched. If you look at the first chapter of Acts, where after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the church is waiting for the Spirit to come, they also decide, we need a replacement. We need a replacement for Judas. And so they go through this discernment process, and there's, there's Matthias and Barsabbas, and they're saying, which one? And they say, this is the requirement. The requirement is that that, that person needs to be, have been with us from the beginning. From the time of Jesus' baptism and then through to the resurrection. 
That's, that was the requirement for being an apostolic witness, that you had to be able to, you had been there from the beginning. This is that you had actually heard the message. And even thinking about from the baptism of Jesus, where we, where we read that the Father speaks over Jesus, this is my son. Listen to him. And the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism as a dove. So they, they heard the Father. They, they saw the Spirit. They witnessed this. That was the requirement of the apostolic witness. And this message was not just, just passed down doctrinally, but experientially. That was the message. Then he talks about koinonia, fellowship. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, this is reason for, for writing this book, so that you would have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what koinonia is. He's talking about this again, another almost like a triangle. It's like you with Christ me with Christ, and together with the Father and the Son. That's, that's the picture of true, genuine fellowship. Sometimes we think, well, we're going to have fellowship after the church service. We're going to eat spaghetti today, and, and there's going to be just wonderful fellowship. You know what? That's, we're going to eat good and get to know each other and build some friendships, and, and that's good. But that's not necessarily fellowship. Koinonia is all built around fellowship with God and with each other in communion relationship with God. You know, there was a, continues to be a, a recent, you know, evangelism strategy or, or philosophy. And I, I toss around, you know, back and forth on this one. I, I don't say that I have the answer. And, and I think every church, you know, and, and opportunities that they have, I believe as they are led by the Spirit, they, they decide for themselves. But the, the one thing that is, has been tossed around a lot in church circles is, is how do people come to faith through the ministry of, of a church? We all obviously all have a, have a role to play in, in our, our neighbors and our family members, people that don't know Jesus, to be a faithful witness. But when it comes to incorporating them into the life of the church, there's, there's been this sort of a swing in saying that we need to have people come alongside of us and belong before they believe. And so the idea is that, you know, people that, that don't know Jesus would come in and, and just be warmly welcomed among us and, and just like everyone else, be able to, to serve and volunteer and everything and just sort of journey together. And, and then by not necessarily like osmosis, intentional community, but that they would come to realize they, they need relationship with Jesus to believe. And I, I struggle with this one because as much as, and I would say this, if, if you're here today and you're just going, I don't know if I would put myself in the camp as identifying as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, as a Christian. But I, I, I like the songs and I like the community here and I, I, I have friends here. 
and I'm, I'm growing and I'm, I'm seeking God and what that means. Know this, you're totally welcome here. You're totally welcome here. But hear this, you won't truly belong until you come to a place where you repent and believe, surrendering your life to Christ. Because that's what koinonia is. That's what John is saying here, is that that is the genuine fellowship of the Spirit in a group of people is based on their complete surrender to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that some of us here are, we're all on a, on a journey of, of sorts and we all have struggles. And we are a group of people that are, are far from perfection. We're sinful people that are saved by God's grace through faith. It's like someone said, you know, if you're at the gym and uh, I know a bunch of you youth, young adults, you're going to the gym and everything. And you, if you see somebody there and they're, you know, they're going hard at the weights and they're working out and you don't go up to them and say, dude, you are so out of shape and you are so overweight. What are you doing here? You wouldn't do that. Because they're at the gym. And yet we as a church, we're often, you know, said, well, that, that church, those people, they're, they're just sinful people. They're hypocrites, whatever. Yeah, we are. We're, we're far from perfect. That is really the, the meaning of why you come to church. There is a requirement for you to actually be a part of the church. And that's to say that you're a sinner, that you're inadequate, that you fall short, and that you are completely dependent on what Jesus has done for you and his grace. That's requirement. But really, going back to the idea, you can't fully belong until you believe. But the good news is, is that the invitation is always available for you to come to a place where you say, I need you, Jesus. I need you. I fall short. I'm a sinner. And I need what you did for me to cover my sin, to wash me, to forgive me. And then, as you meet alongside others that have walked that same journey, suddenly there is a connection. There's you and Jesus, and me and Jesus, and the Father, Son, and suddenly there is koinonia, the richness of true fellowship. Finally, there is... There is joy. Chara. It's a fun word to say. It's joy. It's delight. That's the best part of all this. So you don't have to just take all this, this stuff of Christology and doctrine and everything and, oh, check that. And, okay, I got to, like, live this way and follow these rules. You missed the point. The ultimate what John is saying is, I write this to you so that you would have joy, that it would bring delight to your life. Let me tell you this, friends, brothers, sisters, if you don't have joy in your life, if there isn't a delight in your life, then you're missing out on the, one of the greatest gifts of following Jesus. 
In no way does that mean, just like Haley said, there's not going to be like dark days and there's going to be challenging times. But here is the thing, is that you have the message, the message of hope that's found in Jesus. And if you've received that, that's transformed everything. The fruit of that is actually a transformed life. You can say, God, I want to obey you. And I'm going to follow your way and not mine. I'm going to leave behind my independence and seek you. And when there is obedience, the fruit of that is joy. So friends, brothers and sisters, is that the case for you? And this is where we come to the question, am I in the light? And this is self-examining for each of us. Have we heard the message? Have we received the message? Are we walking in right relationship with Jesus and being obedient to him. And the fruit of that is going to be joy. It's going to taste a bit of it now, a foretaste of it, but ultimately in glory with God in the future, the fullness of our joy. And so the response to examining ourselves by these tests as we do this for the next couple of months is not to look at this and go, oh man, I'm such a failure. Or the opposite to say, oh man, I'm doing so good at that. Rather, hear it as an invitation to walk in the light, to pursue godliness. And because fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, is God's best for you and for me, and the result of that is fullness of joy. Let's pray. God, thank you for the, the prescriptive message of First John. And we pray as we walk through this that we would be paying attention to your spirit in our lives, for us to do the work of examining, to do course correction, not, not based on, on man's evaluation or out of guilt or shame, but out of responding to, to the message of hope that we have and the joy that is found as we walk in obedience to it. God, thank you um, that we can lift our voices in worship and we respond in this way now in Jesus' name, amen.